We'll open your Bibles to Acts chapter 5 and 6 as we continue our, our study uh, of this particular book. Uh, uh, Brother Bruce Higdon has asked to just kind of clarify a comment that he made at the end of class as we were kind of uh, closing off last week. Yeah, so, so Michael, if you can come bring the, uh, the mic up to him, appreciate that. But go ahead and be turning to you know, our text for this morning as we continue our overview of you know, this uh, divine uh, record of history of God's people. My comment was made in haste last week <laughs> as we were at the end of time, but I was commenting on the fact that uh, Ananias and Sapphira uh, suffered death because of what they did. And I had mentioned that it was maybe an example of a sin unto uh, death. But I go back to, now that I have a little more time, and I won't take up much, but back in Matthew, the 12th chapter, Jesus said, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world nor in the world uh, to come. And in those three uh, verses in Acts chapter 5, uh, in verse 3, they had lied to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, uh, they had uh, lied not unto men, but unto God. And uh, again, they had tried the Spirit of the Lord. So I think more than... It, it could be what John uh, had mentioned being the sin unto death, but I think more so it goes back to what Jesus had taught and the apostles had heard, uh, and that the Holy Spirit and God held them accountable. Even back in Exodus... I believe 32, God says, uh, the one who sinned against me, I will blot him out of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think some people have asked uh, me over the years, uh, why did God strike them dead and, and not have uh, mercy on them and forgive them? Well, I, I think it goes back to what Jesus said. When our hearts get so corrupt, they had not lied uh, in doing this act by laying it at the apostles' feet, but they had lied, hardened their hearts against the truth, and made a mockery of their uh, giving. It wasn't as we're commanded later to give with a cheerful heart or give willingly. Uh, it was held back. Rather than saying we held back some, uh, they chose to do these three things. Uh, and he says it wasn't a sin against man. It was a sin against God and the Holy Spirit. So... I wanted to clarify, uh, as I rambled last week, that I got my chain reconnected to my brain and tongue. So. Thank you very much for you know, that explanation. All right, we're going to pick up just there at the end of chapter 5. As, as we didn't, like to say, we didn't touch much on the idea of the opposition. You have this internal problem with the sins of Ananias' fire being uh, addressed. Uh, and then, and then, when you get in you know, into you know, the the latter part of ch- uh, of the chapter, you find that uh, the persecution that has already begun uh, first it was kind of directed to Peter and John uh, themselves, but now because of the great work that uh, is being done, the persecution is increasing. 
And you think about just the, the timing, the, the, the environment uh, uh, in the midst of the congregation there in Jerusalem. Uh, in spite of all the good things, you know, you, they're addressing sin. God's dealing with that. But overall, when you re- read these first chapters, I mean, it's a very upbeat, you know, a very positive you know, uh, work that's being accomplished to the glory of God, to the saving of souls. And so you've got all these good things happening among Christians. But you know, Satan never gives up. And so you see the relentlessness of the adversary of God. You see the, you see the determination of the, uh, of the enemy of God's people. And he has all kinds of schemes or tactics he can use to discourage, to distract, you know, whatever. And I think that this illustrates that with, through the hardness of heart and stubbornness of the Sadducees. Where you've got you know, these unbelievers who were told in, in Acts it was because of jealousy. Because of jealousy, they want to stop the apostles from preaching Jesus. If you recall, there's a similar you know, sinful attitude that uh, is descriptive of them you know, in, in, in dealing with Jesus. For example, back in Mark 15, verse 10, it talks about how it was because of envy. And Pilate even knew that. You know, Pilate knew that they were turning Jesus over to him and they wanted him to be put dead because they were envious. And so that same group of leaders have not changed. And so it is a, a kind of indignant re- resentment that is due, I would suggest to you, somewhat of rivalry you know, of powers here. And so as a result, the 12 apostles are arrested this time, not just the two. And in in the night, as the text tells us, the angel of the Lord freed them from prison. And so, you know, God's purpose, God's plan is not going to be stopped. Uh, His servants are not going to be kept in prison uh, until, you know, they've accomplished what he wants them to accomplish. Interestingly, you know, later on in Acts, you see the first apostle being beheaded. But right now they're freed. You know, it's all, it's all God's plan. Do I understand that completely? No. But, you know, God decides when they're freed. God decides when they become a testimony through their death for Christ. And so the, he frees them. But what I want to kind of you to hone in on is when it says there, the angel then told them to do what? He said, okay, he gets them in the middle of the night. He brings them out of prison and he tells them to go do what? Yes, go teach. You go right back to the temple, you know, or to the, you know, the, the temple grounds. You go right back, right back to the same place, and you start teaching the people about the whole message of this life. And so that's exactly what they do. And as a result, then, they're, you know, they're arrested again. And so you kind of get into the latter section of, of, of this chapter where you've got the inquiry before the council again. And... Uh, there's kind of two things the high priest says. One is, we told you not to, not to talk about Jesus. We told you not to teach Jesus. And of course, and here you've, you, you've gone on and done exactly what you told, you know, what we told you not to do, first of all. And then secondly, he says, you're trying to accuse us of the blood says of Jesus. I find that quite interesting and almost you know, soberly humorous because, do you remember what this council said to Pilate about Jesus' blood? 
Right. Let his blood be on us and our children. And it is Matthew's account that gives you that. Matthew 27, verse 25. And it's a time when you know, Pilate says he's innocent. You know, you know, uh, he's trying to set him free. I wash my hands of it. You know, and that's when they say, okay, let his blood be on us. And now, you know, you know, a short time later, you know, we don't know exactly from the, you know, from the moment of his death to you know, chapter 5 at the end, you know, you know, how many weeks or months has transpired, we don't know. But it's a short period of time, and they have forgotten you know, purposely probably, you know, they have forgotten, kind of push that out of their memory, you know, and so they're upset with the apostles that they're, pre- they're preaching what they told them not to preach, and you're trying to say we're guilty of this man's death. But truth doesn't change, does it? It doesn't matter what the circumstance is. It doesn't matter what kind of threats that are being made against you. The truth doesn't change. And I I just find it interesting when you read, you know, the basically the sermons or the defenses of the apostles in these early chapters. What they say is basically the same thing every time. They don't. It's it's really not different. It may be worded slightly differently. But it's, this, it's the exact same message because the truth doesn't change. The truth is absolute. And so, once again, you know, the response by the apostles is, well, first of all, you know, we need to obey God. You know, first of all, above whom? Above men, right. We have to obey God first. That's foremost of all. And he goes on. And so they say, well, let's tell, let me tell you again what we already told you. And that is, okay, God raised Jesus up, you know, you put Jesus to death on a cross. God exalted Jesus as prince and savior you know, to heaven. And now there's repentance and forgiveness that are granted to, to Israel. He says, we and the Holy Spirit are witnesses of all of this. And God gives the Spirit to those who obey Him. And so you, you see in this condensed version the same thing that you know, is recorded in Acts 4. And the same thing that's recorded in Acts 2, excuse me. And why is that? Because truth doesn't change. Yeah. The truth will always stay the truth. And the circumstances doesn't change it. And just because our life may be threatened, the truth doesn't Well, as you know in your reading, there's a particular, you know, Individual part of the council, part of the in in this attendance at this inquiry against the apostles that speaks up in an offense, you know, not a true defense, but in a sense, you know, gives a defense on behalf of, yeah. And the reason why is because at this point, when they come back and basically tell them the same thing and say, yes, you are guilty of the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, what's, what's the reaction now of a majority or at least a seemingly a large percentage of the Sanhedrin of the council? What are they wanting to do now? They're wanting to kill him. We shouldn't be surprised, should we? Yeah, it hasn't been that long ago that they wanted and they contrived and they basically pushed the execution of Jesus through. So we should not be surprised when they, they are being you know, presented as guilty 
partners in the death of the Messiah, the Christ that you know, God said would come, that they, you know, they'd go right back to the very thing they did earlier against Jesus. Well, let's just kill them all. Well, Gamaliel, you know, in his wisdom, speaks up and basically he says, don't, 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 don't go down that road. Yeah. He says, you know, think about history. Just think about things that we know when there has been previous movements of men you know, you know, who had various agendas and they were led by very influential men. And in names two, you know, Thutis and Judas, he says, you know, and, and, and basically that all fell through. I mean, you know, they, they had a following and then, and then it dissipated. And so his advice is, okay, just leave, leave them alone. Let's see what happens, you know, suggesting this is all going to just pass over. It's just, you know, it's one of those fads, you know, you know some you know, political, religious fad is going to pass over, you know, with time. Well, fortunately, you know, they listened to that advice. I think this is providential. You know, it was, it's not just because of, you know, Gamalu is just this great guy. You know, I think God's working in all these ways that sometimes we cannot pinpoint exactly how he does that. But they don't, they don't kill him. Uh, because if you do, you may find yourself, you're fighting against God. But are they not already? You know, if you recall, you know, Saul fought against the Lord, you know, and he was, you know, brought to a screeching halt of that as well. But before it ends, you know, you know, they said, okay, okay, we won't kill them. So what we're going to do to them? We're going to flog them. We're going to, we're going to beat them, you know, you know, really harshly. You know, and so a flogging is, is a beating, and you know, we're not told exactly what, you know, what method they use, but it was a beating. It could be with a strap, a whip, or a stick. You know, any of those fall under the, the definition of what a flogging is. And so they flogged them real good, and then told them, okay, don't preach Jesus. And then they let him go. To give you somewhat of a, a better understanding of what a flogging is, Involved under Jewish, Jewish uh, tradition, in Second Corinthians chapter eleven, verse twenty-four, Paul, the apostle, uh, re- retells, recounts that in his ministry for the Lord, that he had been flogged five times, and each time, how many times was he beaten? Yes, 39 times. And so Jewish tradition was that when you got flogged, you got hit 39 times. And so this is not a paddling like you would have gotten in school. (laughs) And so, yes, they didn't kill them, but they definitely tried to impress their hearts, their minds. Don't you go teaching Jesus. 
And so they leave and they leave rejoicing over what they have just experienced. And so that is what we, we start now. We want to get into our really our main you know, study this, this morning as we get into the subject of chapter 6. And before we go there, let me just real quick you know, select three questions from your question sheets on lesson 6. Question 2 is, what did the apostles need to primarily focus on doing? Question two, what did they primarily need to be focusing on? Okay, the ministry of the word. Prayer and the ministry of the word. That was their, what their primary focus needed to be. To be. Uh, question eight, why was the word of God still spreading? Why was it spreading? Because you've got this opposition that's begun and it's gradually worsening. So why is the word of God still spreading? The apostles are still preaching. You've got all this teaching and preaching being done every day. Every day in the temple and from house to house. You know, and so their focus was on the word and, that, and, and getting that word to souls. Last question. Question 10. You know, to be added to the number of disciples, what did a person have to do based upon you know, our reading today in chapter 6? What did a person have to do? To be added to the number of disciples of Jesus. Obedient. They had to obey that faith. That one faith that has been once for all delivered. And what the apostles are preaching and teaching uh, every day. Wherever they are. And so I want to begin with actually the last verse of chapter 5, you know, in, in, where it says, And every day in the temple, from house to house, the, they, the apostles, that's the context, kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And what you see is you see the, the sheer determination to carry out fully and completely the Lord's commission. That was, you know, that's what we call the Great Commission. But also to carry out the angel's instruction. Remember what he says? You know, you go right back and you teach fully, wholly the message of this life. So no matter what their obstacles were, you know, that's what the apostles were determined to do. And so they weren't going to allow threats. They were not going to allow floggings, you know, you know. To hinder them from their calling, to hinder them from the urgency of telling the lost about the salvation in Jesus Christ. You know, that thought, that concept should cause us to think of words of Jesus. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, in what he's called, you know, you know, the Beatitudes of Christ. Do you recall what Jesus said early on? When he began preaching the kingdom. In Matthew 5, I'm going to read verse 10 through 12. Yeah. In Matthew 5, 10 through 12, it says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. That's what's going on here. And it's beginning with the apostles, the leadership yeah, in the kingdom, the ones who have the keys of the kingdom. It's beginning with them. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you 
and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's what's happening in the early days and months and years with the establishment of the Lord's kingdom and the Lord's church and the proclamation of the gospel. And so we see the apostles uh, are the first ones who start get, getting the brunt of that opposition and that you know, persecution. And what are they doing? They are rejoicing. They're glad they can you know, share in the suffering with Christ. They weren't always of that mindset, were they? But they grew. They matured. They became convicted and persuaded and grounded. And we're all on that same journey to be convicted, converted, and grounded. So that when we are put in similar situations of opposition or persecution, whatever it may be, yeah, we rejoice and we're glad that we can do so for the sake of righteousness and for the sake of the one whose blood cleanses us. But external opposition is not the only thing that is going on in the congregation there in Jerusalem. Once again, we're in that period of in Jerusalem, they are bearing witness for Christ. And so you've got uh, this idea of other things popping up that they're going to have to, they will have to address. You think about this. The Lord's church is not ever in this world, in this world, within the framework of time, the Lord's church will not ever be free from the hurdles and problems of this world. The absence of all problems is not what determines the health of a congregation. The absence of all problems is not what determines whether or not God accepts that congregation. The key, though, is how, how do God's people faithfully handle the problems or the sins that is among them? That's the key. There will be Sin among God's people. That's the example of Ananias and Sapphira. And there will be problems pop up like here in chapter 6 among God's people. And the key is how do we handle that? God has given us his word. He has given us his will. He's revealed righteousness to us through the teaching of Christ and his apostles and prophets so that we may pattern ourselves after Christ and that we may direct our thoughts and our words and our actions in a Christ-like manner and deal with those problems. You know, in, in Acts as well as in the epistles, you think about all the epistles to the churches and how the Holy Spirit addresses the spiritual matters with which God's children wrestle. You think about all the different things. And when you're reading, you know, whether it's the, to the Corinthians, whether it's to the Romans, or whoever they may be, think about all the different things that 
you know, the Spirit is revealing from the mind of God through His, through the chosen servant of God that are, that's addressed to Christians. And okay, how do you handle this? How do you work through this? Because that's the, that's the thing. We're going to wrestle in this life as God's people. As we make an allegiance, it doesn't mean that the enemy leaves us alone. And so during a period of great growth, you think about all the times at this point, how many times it talks about they're multiplying and they're adding. And they're, you've got all, so you've got this period of great growth in the church at Jerusalem. And here is a matter that rises that could have, that could have divided and split this church down the middle. That could have happened. It didn't happen. But it could have. And I think one reason why it didn't, because of kind of the, the description that is, you know, is given us at the end of chapter 4, when talking about kind of the overall attitude and atmosphere and mindedness of, of this new growing, thriving church of the Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, there, it talks about how there is this one-mindedness of heart and this one-mindedness of soul. I think that's one reason why when this issue, you know, this, this problem you know, where there is an oversight in the benevolence that's being done, there is an oversight that occurred. And, but because of this one minus, you find them that together with the right kind of leadership, you know, the, the church works through whatever uncomfortableness there may have been. We don't know what, it, what uncomfortableness there was. Or whatever tension there may have been. We don't know. Because we're not told that. We're not told all of the, you know, you know the, the, the mess that it could have been, you know. But what you do, you see, you, they, discern, they, they discern the issue, and they discern what the solution is, and then they implement it. And so, as you know, the complaint, the complaint is brethren complaining against other brethren about this matter. Does this happen among God's people today, that brethren will complain against other brethren about a matter? Yes. Now, specifically the issue, like I say, it involved this idea of benevolence, and there is an oversight that has occurred. And so we talked about, you know, we have these kind of these two groups at play here. You've got these converted Hellenistic Jews. They're Christians. But their background is Jews... They were, you know, that have been influenced by the culture uh, of Hellenism. And so they're Hellenistic, accepting the Greek culture against Hebrews that did not do that. And those Hebrews were also Christian. So you got two groups of Christian here who have a somewhat different background. And the point is, the widows of the, among the Christians who were more Hellenistic... Or have been overlooked, and the complaint is directed toward the Christians who are more Hebrew in in their you know, thinking. Once again, the overall attitude though is benevolence. 
You know, that, that's a very thriving, strong thing. You have this benevolent attitude that's talked about earlier in chapter 2, chapter 4, where everybody has the sacrificial sharing, where they want to meet everybody's needs. And But the church in Jerusalem is composed of these two groups. They are represented there, and you've got this accusation going on. Now, according to Paul... In Galatians 3, 28, when talking about how we're all sons of God through faith, as many as were baptized in Christ have clothed ourselves or put ourselves in Christ. And we're told in verse 28 of, of this uh, chapter in Galatians 3 that all of those people, no matter what their gender is or no or matter what their your background is, all of them are one. So that's true in Jerusalem. You've got Christians coming from somewhat different cultural backgrounds, converted to Christ, and they're now one in Christ. And think about that. Do, do churches, modern church today, have to wrestle through diversity? Yeah. Well, yes. Any group, even faith groups, you know, with diverse backgrounds. Diverse economic situations, diverse uh, cultures and diverse views. Any group that is, has those differences among them, they will face some kind of challenges along the way. You know, th- that's just kind of you know, the, the nature of us as human beings. You know, this diversity you know, sometimes can become a polarizing thing. And in Christ... You know, you, you've got to work through those things. And that's why you can, you, we can see how this, you know, this kind of soil, when there's soil of diversity present in a group, we can see how that can easily, if not you know, exercised properly and wisely, that, that that could easily breed suspicion. That could easily breed prejudice if there is not righteousness tempering all of this. You know, Jesus told us to judge how in John 7, 24. How did Jesus tell you to judge in John 7, 24? Not according to appearance, but according to righteousness. Judge according to righteousness. And so that's what we have to do. We have to discern when you have this kind of similar. You've got some diversity. You've got, you've got a complaint that's popped up. You've got to kind of work through this. Once again, we're not told what the emotions of the people are. You know, we're not told what their personal judgments are you know, about one another and how they feel about one another. We're not told any of that. And so we don't need to go down that, that road and speculate. You know. What we are told is this. We're told who accused whom about what. That's what we're told. Who accused whom about what. That's all that's all what we know. And it's in regard to this idea of the oversight of benevolence. And so we then look in this text and we see the leadership of the, of the Jerusalem church is still... You know, the apostles overseeing the work. And I think when you read these verses, verses 1 through 6, first of all, you see what's, what is implied. We know what the complaint is. 
Who said it? To whom? About what? We know that. What is implied is that this complaint was presented to the apostles. That's what's implied. That this was, this was presented to the leadership. And then that leadership, the apostles, had to discern wisely. They had to discern righteously the matter. Where you've got this oversight between these two diverse groups. And so that's what they do. They discern the matter and then they choose a solution. It was that simple. Not simple, but in the, in, in the, in the description of it, it's, it they presented the, the problem. Here's the issue. Let's wisely think through this. You know, you know what's, what's the right solution? And now let's implement that solution. And what we see here is that the apostles, you know, they listened and they, and they considered it. And when they speak to the congregation, they first explain, okay, here is where our priority is. He says, it is not desirable, verse 2, for us, talk about themselves, you know, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And the, the expression serve tables in verse 2 is an exposition of the phrase in verse 1 about you know, daily serving the widows. Those two are describing the same situation, the same kind of benevolence. And he said, okay, so the priority, the Paul says, is you know, it's, we don't need to be taking away from what our primary focus is, what our priority is, and that is God's word. And you think, go back to the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Mark 16. What did Jesus himself tell the apostles before he went back to heaven? Go tell the world. Tell the world the gospel. Tell the world what I've commanded. You know, that's their commission. That's the overriding thing. And you see, that's what's reiterated in Acts. You know, you think about in chapter 4, verse 20, you know, when Peter and John in the first inquiry says to, to the Sanhedrin, we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and what we heard. We're not going to stop. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to keep telling everybody what we have seen and what we've heard. And then you've got the angels instruction there when he frees them from the jail and he says, now go back to the temple and you tell everybody the message of life. And so that's the primary thing. And so, and that is still the primary, the priority of God's people today. You know, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 talks about the household of God and how, you know, we, Paul's writing to me so that he may instruct those how to conduct themselves properly in the household of God and the family of God. And he says, and that household, that family, that church is what of truth? Pillar of ground of truth. Yeah, it, it, it is to be holding up the truth. That's the primary work of God's people. It revolves around the word of truth. In Ephesians 4, it basically makes that same point. If you just kind of glance at those verses, it talks about you know, every member doing their part in the body of Christ. 
you know, earlier talked about the, the, the mindedness that must be implemented. Uh, we've talked about, you know, you know various you know, principles that are, you know, bring about oneness, you know, one Father, one Lord, one Spirit. Those things are mentioned earlier on. But then you start looking in verse, you know, uh, uh, 14, 15, oh yeah, 14, 14, uh, where he says, okay, don't be children who are just easily tossed. Verse 15, speak the truth in love. He's talking to the membership of the Lord's people, of the Lord's church. He says, be speakers of truth and love so that you will grow up in Christ. And then he goes, and so fit together properly according to the proper working so that growth of the body will take place. But that growth of the body is going to take place ultimately and primarily by speaking the truth in love. And so the thing is, is the congregation accepted this. They accepted the apostles' decision. They accepted the, you know, their instruction. And so they selected qualified men. And then the apostles prayed with those. And the apostles then blessed those men and sent them out on the task that they, they, had, they had to do. In the remaining just you know, few minutes, I want to kind of touch on some points I think that are, are illustrated in this you know, problem and the solution and the implementation that takes place that are principles that are applicable about any you know, kind of work that the Lord's church is ordained to do. You know, the peaceful success of working through this problem, one thing, it indicates that the church at this time still was Christ-focused. And as a result, because they're Christ-focused, they're maturing spiritually. And so there's a sense of autonomy yeah, you know, uh, the autonomous nature of the church is amplified in this from the standpoint the church in a particular location uh, can do what they're called to do. And that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to you know, do the work that God has given them to do. And that is the church takes care of her spiritual family. And the church makes sure that family is being built up. And so there is, there is no sense of looking outside of themselves to, to solve the solution and to carry out the job. Yeah. You know, in, in, in the first century, clearly, you don't have all the modern methods that are used by churches today so to, to carry out whatever work they want to do. And so there's no, you know, obviously in the New Testament, there's no man-made institutions. This is the beginning of the church. There's no man-made organizations. No, no, there's no extracurricular activities. Why is that? Because they're focused on God and the mission that they've been given. And so there, there's a sense of autonomy at work here with the membership pulling together, working through a problem together, and, and, and making sure, you know, the solution is implemented. I think another thing is, is an attitude of humility and an attitude of, of, of mutual consideration was being practiced. Uh, you think about the idea of you know, this oversight. I would suggest to you that the oversight you know, it was not deliberate. <laughs> yeah. Now, I don't know that for sure. But when it comes to the regarding these widows, the oversight of the widows, you know, I would suggest you it probably was not a deliberate sliding. We're not going to take care of your widows because, you know, 
our diversity. You know, what's going on here? You know, what's going on here is, you know, you, you know, there is a huge growth happening to the church every day. And with that growth, there's going to be benevolent leads that was constantly changing as well. And so there is an understanding that is, is being done. And to me, when you think about, you know, you know, you know just the simplistic way that this is told, uh, you know, it suggests that there's humility and there's consideration among all. You know, there's no ill will you know, being you know, you know, expressed. Everybody wanted a peaceful solution. And so they united together to, to, to implement that solution. Uh, you think about also the idea of when the apostle said, okay, our focus is God's word. And so therefore putting bread on the table, putting bread on the table was not the food the apostles were all about. Was it? And so you can think how in, with this growth and the needs, how you know, there could be very easily an oversight, not a purpose, deliberate meanness going on here. And so there is this understanding, there is this humility, this Christ-mindedness that helps them work through this. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 32, at the well? You know, they left to go do what? They left Jesus at the well to go to town to do what? To buy bread, you know, to buy bread. And they come back, and what does Jesus, in your words, what does he tell, tell them about bread? Yes. He says, you know, my bread is to do the work of my father. You know, there's bread that you don't know about. You know, and, and they missed the point, you know, we're told there. And then when you take all of that into consideration, you can see why that this could happen. You know, that there can be oversights that are just, you know, human mistakes. And, and it's not an intent to, to mistreat or, or hurt anybody. And yet, when the problem is presented, the leadership discern it, they find a solution, and they work through it. And so they select seven men. I mean, time you know, is almost up here. But when you think about it, you've got seven men who are selected. And I'm sure in, in your study, many times you probably noted, you know, different scholars saying they, they're all Grecian names. They're all Grecian names. Now, who selected this, these seven? Who selected these seven men? The, the entire congregation. The Hellenist Christians as well as the non-Hellenist Christians. Together, together, they selected these seven men, men that they could discern fit the character that the apostle says would be needed you know, you know, to carry out this work. Together, they do this. And so the, you know, these seven are chosen, and they're chosen you know, to devote themselves to this serving tables, making sure this oversight is resolved and, and people are taken care of. Uh, and so you know, the true physical needs were being supplied. You know, yeah, now, once again, I think the emphasis by what the apostle says is, but that's not their primary work. 
The, you know, the need is being met, yes, but it's being met so that that need does not distract from the primary work of prayer and the Word of God. The primary work of sounding forth words of salvation to more and more and more Jews to bring them into Christ so their sins can be forgiven by the only atoning that is possible to save the lost. Thank you very much. Time is up. I appreciate your attention. Uh, Thank you, you very much for that.